Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation 5. I believe this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Revelation 4.11 is one of the most important verses in the Bible, and Revelation 5, which immediately follows, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And we need to understand exactly what is happening in this chapter. And what is the significance of this scroll and the Lamb's actions with the scroll. The only way we can really understand what happens after Revelation 5 is to understand what happens in this chapter. I believe this chapter actually transpires during an unknown interval of time between the rapture of the church and the start of the tribulation, which begins when the Lamb opens the scroll. And I wanted to thank my mom and I think was Graham and McKenna that helped make this scroll. And I believe this looks like the scroll we see there in Revelation. It's sealed with seven seals. Not seven seals along the outside. And you'll see how the Lamb will open the first seal and He'll read what's there and a judgment comes. And So underneath this first layer is another seal and you open it. and You get all the way down and then the actual scroll or the deed that the Lamb reads when He returns to earth is in here. So this is just kind of a neat prop. And we'll open it as we move along through the book. I hate to do it because it's such a neat neat thing, but I believe this is more in line with what that book mentioned in Revelation 5 looks like if y'all want to pass it around. But thanks guys for making that. That's pretty neat, pretty neat uh, prop there. Alright, I just want to start out this morning. Let's just read the chapter. I want to read the whole chapter of Revelation chapter 5. Matthew, if you'll read the first four verses. Jim, if you'll read verses 5 through 7. Bob, if you'll read 8 through 10. And um, Ronnie, if you'll read verses 11 through 14. And just read it loud so everybody can hear. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, and sat upon the throne. And when he had, had taken the book, the four beasts and, four, uh, and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. 
for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God's kingdom and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as in, as in the sea, and all that are in them heard I say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. All right. I believe, as I said, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And as we talk about this, and even as we're going through this book of Revelation, you might have noticed that I tend to repeat things and go back over things. And so you'll hear things once that you've already heard. And you might think to yourself, why is he repeating himself? Has he forgotten what he's preached before? And I wanted to just take a moment and emphasize the necessity of repetition when it comes to learning God's Word. Okay, It says in the book of Peter that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to anyone that asks a reason for the hope that is in us. So what that is urging us as Christians to be is to be able to give an answer instinctively. To where if we're asked a question somewhere during our normal day or away from home and we don't have a Bible in our possession, we can instinctively give a biblical answer. So we need to work toward making the Scriptures instinct to us. Not just something we pick up and read, but instinct to where we know them and we can bring them to mind in an instant, of course, with the power of the Holy Spirit. I teach a martial arts class. Several of my students are here today, praise the Lord. But we have a core principle in our martial arts style that says this. It says, repetition and equal attention to both sides of the body is key to instinctive reaction. In martial arts, students get tired of practicing the basics over and over again, the blocks and the strikes and the kicks and the most basic of movements and the basic katas over and over and over and over and over again. Not understanding that repetition and doing things on both the right and the left is what builds instinct. If you need to defend yourself or defend someone who can't defend themselves, you're going to have to rely on instinct to do it in those moments. And I think that same principle needs to apply to the study of God's Word. Okay, When we think of right and left sides of the body, we think of right and left sides of the brain. They say the left side of the brain is more... Uh, uh, more about um, um, specifics and details and analysis and, uh, you know, uh, the specifics, I guess. And then the right side of the brain is the more the side of the creative thought, the abstract, the big picture. We need to look at Scripture and exercise both sides of our brain. So it requires repetition. It requires the specifics which is the exegesis looking at the very words and the very verses themselves, and it also requires us to look at the big picture, the abstract um, 
interpreting Scripture with Scripture and seeing how this passage relates to the rest of the book. So the only way we can make the Scriptures instinctive is we need repetition. We need to teach in a way that goes back over the stuff that's already been taught, that not only exegetes the passage, but expands and looks at other Scriptures. How does Scripture interpret Scripture? What is the big picture? How does this passage or this chapter fit in the rest of the book? So that's why you'll find me leaving Revelation from time to time to look at other passages that I believe are significant. I don't believe we can start talking about Revelation 6, the opening of the seals, until we study Daniel chapter 9 and his vision of the 70 weeks. So I hope the repetition isn't something that has gotten you bored because my hope is that it will lead toward an instinctive knowledge of the Scriptures particularly those relating to the last day. So that's kind of why you see some repetition going on. It's on purpose. It's not because I didn't properly plan uh, for the message. So there will be some things repeated today so that you learn them. Okay? Make the Scriptures instinctive. Not just something you do a few minutes a day and you have to actually have your Bible in your possession open to a passage to remember what's being said. We want it to be instinctive. So anyway, let's look at this chapter. We've read it today. You know what ha happens here. We have the focal point of this chapter. Two focal points. One is this seven-sealed scroll, book or scroll. Wouldn't have been a bound book. The book John's referring to would look more like this. Before the invention of the printing press, there weren't bound books. Things were written on vellum and papyrus and they were rolled up like so. A scroll. We have the seven sealed scroll emphasizing the first part of the chapter and then we have this seven horned lamb. This lamb that was slain who is the object of the praise and worship of the beast and the angels and the elders in heaven. And it's very significant not only what this scroll is but what the lamb does with it because it's related to everything that follows. Everything that follows. First, note here at the very beginning of the chapter, verse 1, the location of this scroll. I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne. That's God, Almighty God. John, John is seeing the judgment throne of God in heaven. We've already talked about this, Revelation 4. We had this great truth revealed in verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, because Thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. How many of you in here have learned the, what they call the Romans road of salvation? Those verses of Scripture in Romans that start with the sinfulness of man and go through the sacrifice of Christ and, and, and how to be saved and then what the Christian's life should look like. We've been teaching, trying to teach my kids that um, at home, but I think Romans road actually starts in Revelation 4.11. Okay, Revelation 4.11 tells us who God is. And then we go to Romans 3.23, or Romans 3.9 and 10 and Romans 3.23, and that tells us who man is. So, the Romans road starts Revelation 4.11, in my opinion, just one man's opinion. That's where it begins. There is a God, He is the Creator, and He created all things for His pleasure, not for ours. So we have this great revelation in verse 11, and then we have this book and the Lamb, and we have it centered around the throne of God. But this book is in the hand of God. So God has just been portrayed as the Creator, the Owner. 
So somehow this book is related to God's ownership. We learn that right there in the beginning. This scroll is directly related to God's ownership. So I want you to think of God here in chapter 5. He is being portrayed not only as the owner, but the landlord over something. He's the landlord. Just like I have a landlord that manages and owns a building where I hold my martial arts classes. I don't just do whatever I want over there. I can't just bring in whoever I want to do. I answer to the landlord. I'm a tenant. I'm a tenant that exercises authority in that room a certain time on certain days of the week. But I don't own the building. I'm just a tenant. So this scroll is in the right hand of, the land, of, of God. And then John says that it's a scroll written within. That means on the inside and on the backside. So it's written within and without. And it's sealed with seven seals. So there's writing on the inside rolled up and there's writing on the outside that can be seen. I want you to note that. If you go and look at Jewish tradition in terms of land transactions, and you even see a little bit of this in Jeremiah chapter 32 when Jeremiah, as the kinsman redeemer of a piece of land, buys his cousin's field, and then they subscribe evidence on a sealed scroll written within and without, and then it's buried, and Jeremiah's promised that God will bring Israel back into the land and he can actually take possession of his field that he redeemed. We see a picture, but this tradition shows that when these scrolls or these land deeds were drawn up, inside was the record of the purchase or the transaction was recorded. And then on the outside of the scroll would be the writing or the acknowledgement of the witnesses. And so the inside contains a transaction, the outside contains the witnesses and their acknowledgement. Kind of like when we sent off this week for Nate to, get, to, to try to get Nate that passport, and he had to get that form filled out by Daryl with his signature, Daryl had to have that paper, the transaction was on top of the paper, but he had to have it notarized to prove that it was witnessed. And so think of the outside writing as a notary of sorts in Jewish tradition. The witnesses subscribe their names. And then the seals are what were the guarantee of the integrity of the document. Usually there were two documents made, and you can see this in Jeremiah 32. One was a public document, public record. But then there was the sealed document that was sealed with seven scrolls. The public record was just so people could know this transaction had taken place, but the public record was not proof of the transaction. It was the sealed document because the seals protected it from tampering, protected it from being altered, was a protection against the seller coming back later and say, I never agreed to this. Or if someone bought the land like Jeremiah in chapter 32, and it would be years before he could actually take possession of that piece of property, there'd be foreign squatters or people who would come in and lay claim to it. And this sealed document would be proof that Jeremiah was the owner of that field in Anatoth. So that's what's going on here, and that's how the redemption of the land was handled with Israel and land purchases. And so you have a seven-sealed scroll written within, some sort of transaction, I believe, written without the subscription of witnesses and sealed with seven seals. Not just one seal, but seven, the number of completeness or perfection to protect its integrity. So somehow this is related to a land transaction, I believe, because of the way John describes it. 
And what, is he, what he's describing here is what the Jews would use for these so-called land transactions and purchases, particularly as related to the redemption of a piece of land by a near kinsman. Exactly what happens in Jeremiah 32. Obviously, this document, whatever it is, we see very quickly must be a very important document. Look at verse 4. John says, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereupon. John wept because no one was worthy. Well, this book must be important to elicit that type of transaction. And then when we see later that the Lamb actually takes the book from the hand of God, what does that elicit? Innumerable praise from a great innumerable host of witnesses. Angels, elders, and creatures. So it's a very important document. If it's a very important document, we need to know what it is. And I believe we can know what it is by looking at the whole testimony of Scripture. Look at verse 3. I'm, I'm, I'm backpedaling just a moment. No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. That word man there is a reference to a human being. Okay? A human being. No human being in heaven, earth, or under the earth. Well, the fact that John refers to men in heaven at that moment to me is subtle evidence that the church is in heaven. It's not only evidence that the church is in heaven, this is further verified in chapter 5, verse 9, but it also kind of refutes that doctrine of soul sleep. This idea that when you die, your body just rests in the ground and it's not until the coming of Christ that you actually are risen from the dead and are with the Lord. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, just as there are men in heaven with their glorified bodies after the rapture, I believe now the souls of the redeemed are in the presence of God. They're awaiting the redemption of the body. So at the moment John says, no man in heaven, that must mean men were in heaven. And we see in verse 9 that there's an innumerable host of not only angels and beasts, but elders. Remember how I said the elders represented redeemed mankind? So at that moment, none of the saints in heaven were worthy. John said, nor in earth. In earth is a, is, is, a, is a reference to those that were left behind on the earth after the rapture, I believe. So, no man on the earth, no, no kings of the earth, no politicians, no wealthy men, no antichrist, none of them at that moment were worthy to open the book. And then look what it says, nor under the earth. Well, what in the world is this a, 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 a reference to? Is this a reference to those crazy creatures that those weird people in Mount Shasta say live under the mountain up there, those gnome creatures? No, crazy people. California's got some really crazy places. I, we, Matt, Jamie and I lived out there, you know, and up, up around Mount Shasta, which is kind of a strange area. A lot of New Age stuff goes along up there. Uh, goes, go, uh, happens up there. And they claim there's this race of people called Lemurians. They're like gnomes. And they live under the mountain and they have a subterranean city and all this crazy stuff. And There's a lot of pot that grows in the woods up there. So that kind of explains and it's proof positive that, that our president was wrong when he said that marijuana has no greater effect on the body than just smoking a cigarette or drinking alcohol. That's about the stupidest thing that's ever come out of his mouth. And a lot of stupid things have come out of his mouth, but that was one of the top ones. Go visit Humboldt County, California. 
Go hang out around Mount Shasta where that's what they do all the time and you'll realize that isn't true. So no, this isn't a reference to Lemurians living under Mount Shasta. I believe this phrase, under the earth, is a, is, is a, a reference to those souls that are in hell. So neither in heaven, neither on the earth, or in hell was there anybody worthy to open the scrolls. Under the earth is a, rep- is, is, is a reference to hell. I believe hell, which, by the way, not talking about the lake of fire, hell is a holding cell. Before Christ died on the cross, Jesus told a, par- a, a parable or a story about Lazarus and the rich man and how Lazarus went to be in Abraham's bosom. And then Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I believe that before Christ actually paid the redemption price for man and rose from the dead, I believe that the righteous, those that had faith in God and the coming Messiah, went to a place called paradise. It was a place of rest and peace. And Jesus describes it in Luke chapter 16, separated from hell by a great gulf. And when Christ rose from the dead and went back to heaven, He led captivity captive. I believe Christ emptied paradise on that day. And because the transaction had, been t- had taken place, Jesus actually offered His blood in the heavenly tabernacle. It says that in Hebrews. That's why in one of the Gospels, when He's risen from the dead, He tells the women, or He tells Mary, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to my Father. And then in one of the other Gospels, it says the women came up and were hugging on Him and touching Him. I believe that sometime between the time He told Mary and met the other women, in an instant of time, Jesus physically went to heaven, offered His blood on the heavenly tabernacle, and then came back to earth. And then, of course, later He ascended to heaven. But that's a whole other topic. But Jesus emptied paradise. And that's why there were, there were risen saints seen walking around Jerusalem for a time when Christ rose from the dead. I don't know who these were, there were a few saints that received their resurrection bodies when Christ raised. I don't know who they were. The first fruits of the resurrection. Of course, the church as a whole receives their resurrection bodies at the rapture. The living in Christ and the dead in Christ. That's the harvest. And then you'll have those that get saved during the tribulation. Revelation chapter 7. The gleanings of the harvest. But I believe that hell is in the heart of the earth and that it's never full. It's fully populated. Paradise is empty. Christ emptied paradise. When you die, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Paul said to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. At the rapture, the spirits of the righteous dead who have gone before and those who are alive and remain are given their resurrection bodies. Okay? So that's kind of what's going on here. But I believe that hell is in the heart of the earth and hell is a holding cell. Just like paradise was a holding cell for the righteous before they can be in the presence of God once the sacrifice has been paid, because no unclean thing can come into God's kingdom. So hell is a holding cell. You go to hell, it's like going to county jail. You've been booked, but you've not been judged yet. That great white throne in Revelation chapter 20, that's the judgment. And the sentence is the lake of fire. The lake of fire is like the state pen. So hell's just a shadow of what is to come. And those souls that are in hell, as one Christian rap artist said, ain't even got judged yet. Holding cell in the earth. Jesus spoke about three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
What happened in the book of Numbers chapter 16 with the rebels that tried to overthrow Moses? It says the earth opened up and swallowed them whole. They went straight down to hell. Some people would say, well, that's crazy. That's fairy tales. That's no more of a miracle than Jesus opening the eyes of the blind. I mean, why is that fantastic to think that God couldn't do that? Hell is referred to as the pit in the Old Testament. The grave, the pit. Consider a few facts about the earth. The earth has a crust. The surface of the earth, we live on the crust. It's about 5 to 25 miles thick. Some places at the bottom of the sea, about 5 miles thick. On the land, it's about 25 miles thick. That's just the crust. Then you've got the mantle, 1,800 miles thick. Mantle's kind of a liquid uh, uh, state. You know, you think of the stuff that spews up through the earth crust. And if you've ever been to Hawaii and you've seen off the shore, the south shore of the big island, you can see that lava just flowing into the ocean. It's constantly coming up. Then below the mantle, you have what's called the outer core. They say it's more solid. And that it's 1,380 miles thick. And then couched within that semi-solid outer core, you have the inner core that they say is 780 miles thick. The inner core itself has a volume that the number is so big it won't fit on the screen of my iPhone. It says, it's got the little E there. So it's so big when you talk about the volume of just the inner core of the, of the earth. It's so big that the number doesn't fit on the screen of my iPhone. The core of the earth is about 70% the size of the moon. So that's pretty big. When you consider that on the earth today, if you were to take every person living on the earth, about, what is it, seven billion, stand them side by side, about a foot, foot and a half of space, I think everybody could fit, if it's not within the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida, it's right there in that corner of North Florida. So when you consider that, and then you consider the size of the earth's core, and you consider that it's not people with bodies down there, it's spirits awaiting judgment, it's not fantastic to me that all the unrighteous in the history of the world that have ever died are in hell, and that hell's in the heart of the earth. I read an article dated April 25th, 1913, I mean, uh, 2013 article in a scientific journal, and they said that the earth's core... Had been, it's been discovered recently, and I don't know how, no one's ever been down there or drilled down there, but it's been discovered that it's actually 1,800 degrees hotter than had been previously claimed. They used to say it was about 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit, now they believe it's about 10,800 degrees Fahrenheit. At the bo- at just, this is just at the boundary between the inner and the outer core. So we're not talking about the center of the core. We're talking 10,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That is the same temperature as the surface of the sun. It only takes 350 degrees to bake a a loaf of bread. 10,800 degrees. That's hotter than we can even imagine. And the size is certainly big enough to house those awaiting judgment. And so I think this reference under the earth is a reference to the souls in hell. Okay, a fiery place. It's described in Luke 16, separated by a great gulf from paradise. Wonder how many are in hell today that would be just like the rich man, begging, pleading. Of course, there is no Abraham down there to talk to anymore. 
No saints, no Lazarus to look at across the gulf. That's empty. Paradise is empty. But I wonder how many are down there in hell just like the rich man hoping, wishing, praying they could just go back to earth for a short time to warn their friends and relatives. I wonder how many. Probably some that just absolutely hated God and hated Christians, their Christian family and friends when they walked this earth. But the sad thing is, that's not going to happen. You see, everyone living today has Moses and the prophets. They have the Word of God. And if they won't hear the testimony of God's Word and of salvation, the great truths of that Roman road, they wouldn't listen even if some soul came back from the dead. Everybody says, well, if God would just show me a sign, I'll believe. No, you won't. No, you won't. You'll explain it away. Proof positive is the history of Israel. They saw signs. It says, in, I believe in the book of Exodus, when God came down and the elders went up to the mountain and they sat around the table and feasted, it says they saw the God of Israel. There are those that have seen God. Not in all His glory, but they've seen Him. Those that walked with Jesus saw God. But it says the, the, the elders of Israel saw the God of Israel and His feet were like a paved sapphire stone. They saw the God of Israel. And then we learn later that in that 40 years of wandering in the desert, they didn't even worship Him. Their festivals were worshiping Molech and all this other garbage talked about in the book of Amos. They didn't observe a Passover unto the Lord God, so they saw the God of Israel and still turned away. So just if God showed Himself or spoke to you or whatever, you wouldn't believe. Your heart is hard. I like what was said earlier today. The ultimate compliment's not I love you, it's I trust you. You know, people all the time, well, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Well, big deal. You don't trust Him. What is it to say I love Jesus if you don't trust Him or you don't take God at His Word? Not taking God at His Word is the ultimate insult against God. It's the pinnacle of all that is wicked. I was preaching last night in Charlotte, and I know I'm getting off on a tangent here. You know, the, the, the commandments God's given us, written on tables of stone and on our conscience. Jesus summed them up in two great commandments. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And everybody wants to talk about loving our neighbor, loving our fellow man, but no love for God. You can love your fellow man. You can go to the homeless shelter and feed the poor. Of course, these people that go feed the poor aren't actually taking money from their pocket to buy the food to feed the poor. They're just going down there and serving food that someone else has bought and thinking, oh, look what a great thing I'm doing. But you can do all this stuff and love your fellow man but have no love for God and that is so backwards that it doesn't reflect a moral heart. It reflects a black heart. A black heart. You may be a hard worker, a dark heart, a wicked heart. You may be a hard worker and you save up and you store up your money and you sit on it thinking, well, I'm, I'm building a nest egg. And I'm saving up for my family and my kids and my, my grandparents. And you can do it in such a way that you'd never lift a finger to help anyone else. You'd never lift a finger to serve God. And you think you're a good person. No, you're not. Your heart's black. It's wicked. Because you've elevated man above God. You can't love your fellow man if you don't know how to love God. That's wicked. I don't even know, know where, 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 how I got on that. <laughs> but we have, uh, we have hell. No, no one in heaven, no one in hell, no one on the earth at that time was worthy. And John wept. John wept. Now, before we move on in terms of specifics, 
We've been doing a little left brain exegetical analysis. Let's back off for a minute and let's shift to the right brain. Repetition equals tension to both sides of the body. I want us to back off for a moment and look at all of Revelation 4 and 5 as a whole. Because they go together. Before we can understand exactly what this scroll is, let's look at the two chapters together as a whole. And I think there are seven clear themes that emerge. Seven clear themes that emerge concerning God and the Lamb that are testified elsewhere in Scripture and that form a thematic backdrop when we see what's actually happening here. And we must remember these things about God and the Lamb because they help us identify what is actually taking place. So let's consider these two chapters of a whole. As a whole, we have two what I call persona extraordinaire featured in these chapters. I'm not talking about the elders or the beast or the angels. We have God on His throne and we have the seven-horned lamb that was slain. God holding the book, the lamb who comes and takes the book. God who is worthy to rule and the lamb who is worthy to rule because He has redeemed us and therefore worthy to open the scroll. So we have two persona extraordinaire and seven clear themes that relate directly to what follows in the book of Revelation. This is all on your outline. First, we have as relates to Almighty God. And again, I'll be in chapter 4 a little bit. Number one, God is holy. Chapter 4, verse 8, And the four beasts and each of them had each of them six wings about them and were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty which was and is and is to come. God is holy. What does holy mean? Any of you kids give me a good definition of holy. What does it mean? McKenna, do you know? What's, what's holy mean? Got a guess? Graham, you got a guess? Autumn? Perfect, sinless. Is man sinless? Perfect, no. Righteous. Man is not these things. God is. So the key concept of holiness is separate. God's separate. Because God is holy and righteous and perfect and man is not, God is separate. The, the key concept of holiness is separate. God is separate from His creation. He is other. He is apart. He transcends the created order. Because the curse that is on creation and on man doesn't affect God. God is other, above, beyond. You know, this idea that there is this cosmic duality, I've, I've, I've talked about this before. A lot of that comes from an ancient Persian religion called Zoroastrianism. This idea that there's these two equal forces in the universe, good and evil, and that history is a cycle of good versus evil. And that it's God versus the devil. And sometimes the way some of these Christian pastors preach and the terminology they use in terms of the war between good and evil, you would think that they believe that God and Satan are on equal footing. It's not like that. God is above. Satan is a created being, a created cherub that does what he does because God allows it. And we're going to see why as we study this chapter Satan is in power here on the earth. I believe Satan at this moment holds the rights to the tenant possession of this earth. And it's not 
because God gave it to him, it's because God allowed him to take it. But he didn't take it from God. Somebody gave it to him. And we'll talk about that more later. But, but there is not this cosmic duality. And I think when we see what happens here with this scroll, right in chapter 4, it's made very clear. Holy, holy, holy. Look, God's above all this, and this is all happening under His divine watch care and providence. In other words, Satan is God's minister on a short leash, is a way to think of it. God is holy and above. God doesn't battle evil. God created evil in the beginning. I know maybe you can't handle that. Turn to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. Remember 4.11? Thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. Whatever is in this world that we don't understand is ultimately sourced in God. And it's for His pleasure, which means He's assured the victory. And whatever evil and judgment and destruction there is, it's allowed to happen to ultimately bring God glory. And He's going to get glory in what happens in Revelation 5. But turn to Isaiah 45.7. This is a passage I've never ever heard a preacher have the guts to preach. The unknown Bible per se. I form the light and create darkness, God says. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. It's pretty simple truth. Doesn't mean God is evil. Doesn't mean God sins. But God creates everything. And He creates everything in a way that it transpires according to His plan and His will. And maybe we can't understand that. And maybe it makes us angry and mad and we just don't want to believe God anymore. That's alright. God's still going to do what God's going to do. He's God. He's the potter. We're the clay. Who is the pot to say to the potter, why have you made me thus? That's the simple answer when the mockers come up on the street and say, well, God is so real, why would He allow sin? If God loved, wouldn't allow a little child, blah, 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 blah. Or God wouldn't cause this to happen to me if He was God of love. The, the easiest way to answer that, who are you to question God? You're the created thing. He's a creator. Who are you? Maybe that sounds harsh, but that's what Paul says. It's what Paul says. God is holy. He's the Creator of all things. God is without sin. But He created man with the propensity to choose between good and evil. Man chose evil. God knew it. Nothing took Him by surprise. God creates the destruction and the judgment that comes from sin. It's all related to God. So everything that happens in Revelation that looks so evil, we need to remember these aren't judgments coming from Satan. When the seals are loosed, what happens? Judgment comes. Who looses the seal? Satan? No, the Lamb. It's when the Lamb opens the book that Antichrist comes. Oh, Satan possesses him, but it's the Lamb that opens the seal and the white, white horse with the rider with a bow and no arrow comes. It's all God. He's holy. It's not good versus evil. God creates all things. He created Satan. And He created everything that has done evil. Although God does no evil. Satan, on the other hand, cannot create good. He can only emulate it. He can only resemble good. So to think that God and Satan are on equal terms is foolishness. 
God creates all things, good and evil. Satan can't create anything good. He can only resemble it. He can only deceptively come as an angel of light. God is holy. The second theme we need to make sure we understand, God is eternal. Eternal. These same verses here in in, in Revelation chapter 4, these same verses uh, 8 through 10, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was eternity past, is present, and is to come future. And uh, it goes on to say um, in those verses several things that relate to that. Chapter 5, verse 14 um, talks about God that liveth forever and ever. God's eternal. There is nothing in the created order which was, is, and is to come. That is a description solely reserved for God. The triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternal. Was, is, and is to come. Whatever there may have been between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 when Satan fell, whatever may have existed or not existed on this planet, whether it was Satan's kingdom or some sort of pre-Adamite civilization, it wasn't eternal because it's gone. There's one who was, is, and is to come and that is God, the triune God. It says three times in these chapters that He is the one who liveth forever and ever. That's not just future, that's eternity past. And I know we can't comprehend that. I believe the earth in its present state is about 6,000 years old and I believe that there's plenty of observable scientific evidence. Not the rantings and railings of philosophers, but the evidence of scientific experiment that would agree with the Bible's timeline concerning the present state of the earth. The state of the earth since Adam to now. Whether the actual ball of the planet in the universe is older than that, God doesn't tell us. The Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and, and that word and in verse 2 means and then the earth was formless and void. In Hebrew, tohu vabohu. That terminology is used in the prophet Jeremiah where he describes a period in earth's history where it's without form and void and the cities were laid waste and there was no man. I don't know when other time that's been in history other than Genesis chapter 1, so I don't know if God was showing him something before or not. We'll know all this in in the future, but that wasn't eternal. But I believe the present state of the earth is about 6,000 years old. God existed in eternity past. In the beginning, not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That's hard to fathom. And we wouldn't even know that unless God revealed it to us. But just because we can't understand it doesn't make it so. God has declared it. And His Word has enough proof, enough evidence that it's more than just the rantings of some shepherds and farmers in the ancient Near East. We can trust it. God is eternal. In science, we have scientific law. Things that have been observed so many times and experimented with that we can call it a law. Gravity. Gravity is a fact. Okay, We observe it all the time different rates of gravity depending on what planet you're on, this, that, or the other. But gravity's constant, pretty constant here on on Earth. We have observed it. There's another law called the second law of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics says that anything we see or observe, whether it's the human body, something built by a human, the plant life, the animal life, is going to tend, always tend or point toward 
its most mathematically probable state. And the most mathematically probable state of anything is randomness or disorder. So everything moves from a state of order to disorder. All you got to do is shoot a rogue cat that's been coming in your yard and causing you problems, let his body lay there in, in, in the woods for a while, and you'll see that the order and complexity of that cat goes to disorder. I had to shoot a cat that was full of disease coming around our yard not long ago, and he was eating our cat's food, and I felt sorry for it because half of his face was missing, and he was, I was afraid the disease was going to pass on to Iris, so I dropped him in the yard one shot, and I'm not a good shot. I was pretty impressed. But I carried him out to the woods and I laid him down in a, in a kind of a quiet place, and I, or a secret place where something couldn't readily find it. And I wanted to just see how long it took for that cat to decompose. I went out there about two weeks later. I'm not kidding you. There was absolutely nothing left but a dark spot on the ground, a few really tiny bones, and part of the skull. It was all gone. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything moves from order to disorder. Now, the theory of evolution says the opposite. Evolution claims always simple to complex, disorder to order, the disorder of primordial soup to hospitals and racetracks and, and spaceships and space shuttles and man with intelligence that's not matched in the animal world. Okay, that's what evolution claims. That goes against what we observe. The only thing that defies the law of thermodynamics is God because He's eternal. God doesn't tend toward the most mathematically probable state. God is eternal. He's the same. Evolution also claims uniformitarianism, this idea that what we observe today, the processes we observe today in creation or in the natural world are exactly the same as they've always been. So if we observe a rate of speed or a rate of gravity, it's assumed that it's always been like this and never been any different. The Bible claims that when God sent a flood to the earth, the flood radically changed the surface of the earth. The firmament that was in the heaven, kind of a greenhouse canopy that God put around the earth, crashed down. It doesn't exist anymore. Things have changed. There's nothing uniformitarian except for God. Only God is eternal. And so... What evolution does is it tries to take qualities reserved for the Creator and give them to the creation. It's exactly what Paul claims in Romans. Fools who worship and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God is holy. God is eternal. These Scriptures are making that abundantly clear to us as it sets the stage for the scroll and the judgments to come. God is holy, God is eternal, God is creator, owner. Verse 11, we've already talked about that. You have created all things for your pleasure. God's creator, owner. The fourth theme concerning God, it is God who possesses the power and authority to rule. So not only is He eternal, holy, the creator, but He has the authority. He is the one that has the authority to rule. How do we know this? Well, it mentions the throne of God. Throne means judgment, power, authority. It's a symbol of that. The throne of God is mentioned 17 times in these two chapters. So it's undeniable that the Scriptures are emphasizing God's power and authority to rule. So one persona extraordinaire, God, eternal, holy, creator, 
possessing power and authority. The second persona extraordinaire, the Lamb. What do these chapters teach about the Lamb? Well, it's unquestionable that the Lamb is a Redeemer. We need to realize that the Lamb is being presented as a Redeemer here. And so that idea of a Redeemer is very important as we try to understand what is this scroll. The Lamb is a Redeemer. A couple of times He's referred to as a slain Lamb. This brings back imagery in the Old Testament of the Passover Lamb. The Lamb's blood was put on the sides of the door. And as the angel of death came through, if He saw the Lamb's blood, the house and those therein were redeemed and escaped death. The slain Lamb. He is a Redeemer. In 5.9, look at verse 9 in chapter 5. They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. That word us is very important. It's not them like in the ESV, but us, and we're going to talk about that later. Thou hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. The Lamb has redeemed He's a redeemer. We need to remember that. That means a redeemer purchases something on behalf of someone else. That's what a redeemer does. Purchases someone or something on behalf of someone else. So we need to remember that when we think about what is this scroll. Not only is the Lamb a redeemer, He is worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of God. We see this very clearly emphasized. Four times... In the first chapter, nine verses of chapter 5, it is emphasized that the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll from God. Why? Why is He worthy? Verse 9, because you have redeemed us. It says in verse 5 that the Lamb is worthy because He has prevailed. Past tense. Redeemed. Past tense. Prevailed. Past tense. So somehow this scroll is related to not only the Lamb as a Redeemer, but the Lamb who has performed an act of redemption in the past. And because this act of redemption in the past has taken place, He is therefore worthy to take the scroll. So it's all related. And then the seventh and final theme we need to remember that's clearly emphasized in verse 13 of chapter 5. Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are in the sea. This is talking about even the creatures in hell. And all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. You see, even the souls in hell are going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Recognize that He is worthy. So the Redeemer not only is worthy to take the scroll. That's alright. No big deal. Gives me a chance to take a sip of coffee and breathe. No. Praise the Lord, I needed a swig of coffee. I love preaching with a cup of coffee here. I wouldn't have the freedom to do that in some churches. Not only is the Lamb a Redeemer and worthy to take the scroll, scroll, but He is pictured as having the same exact authority to rule as God the Father. Verse 13. Blessing, honor, and glory be upon Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So the same power and authority terms applied to God the Father are applied to the Lamb. So the Lamb has the same authority to rule. 
It's against these themes, this backdrop of themes, this thematic backdrop, that we can conclude, I believe, very easily, that this scroll, whatever it is, and whatever's written therein, is directly tied to God's program of redemption for the world. It's directly tied to that. Because the Lamb is emphasized as a Redeemer, having redeemed something into the past. And because He's a Redeemer, He's worthy. And because He's worthy, He possesses the same power and authority of God, who is holy, eternal, Creator, and has all the power and authority to rule. Somehow this scroll is directly tied to God's program of redemption for the world. Redemption for the earth. Not talking about just man, but for the earth. To better understand this program and the identity of the scroll, I think we need to go from here and consider some other scriptural testimony. Okay? Let's think about other scriptural testimony concerning redemption, concerning a purchased possession. What does the scripture have to say about God's plan and program of redemption for the world? And we'll just introduce this today. I want to read a quote from a book here I've been reading by Renaud Showers. It's called Maranatha, Our Lord Come, A Definitive Study of the Rapture of the Church. This is a great read, but it's very hard to read. It's a very hard and difficult book to wade through, but it is just a great read. One of the greatest reads I've ever done on the rapture as taught in the Bible. But he has a really good section here on the sealed scroll of Revelation 5 and showing how these things are important and they relate directly to the rapture. But he says this on page 77, Whatever this sealed scroll is, its identification must relate to the facts. The facts that the unique, eternal God created the universe for His own benefit and sovereign purpose. That therefore He alone has the right to rule the entire universe. And that His right to rule includes the right to use His power to crush any enemy who challenges His rule. In addition, this scroll's identification must relate to the importance of the Redeemer and His redemptive work and the fact that the Redeemer is worthy to take the scroll from God's hand, break its seals, open it and read it, and thereby exercise God's ruling power because of His work of redemption. So power and redemption are brought together here. So let's try to figure out what is this scroll. I want to know what it is. I don't want to just make a guess. I want to know what it is. And I think the Scriptures tell us. Let's turn to Ephesians 1, 10-14. Ephesians 1, 10-14. Daniel, will you read that this morning? I want you to listen. The point I want you to get is right there at the end. Um, let me find it here in my Bible. My pages are starting to fall out of this thing. I want you to... Focus on the end of verse 14, but let's set it up by reading it in context. Verses 10 through 14. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom, ye also, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of 
of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, <clears throat> which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. This is a really interesting passage of Scripture because in it we see both God's perspective and man's perspective in terms of salvation. In verse 11 we see God's perspective. He does everything after the counsel of His own will. And for the believer that concept of being elected by God in eternity past is great comfort. But then we see in verse 13 man's perspective. Those that God brought to Himself after the counsel of His own will are those that trusted after they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, in whom after also that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You've got man's perspective. The gospel is preached. Man chose to hear and believe. It's all woven together. It all works together there. Let's don't try to force God to see things through our eyes. And let's don't think, be so presumptuous that we think we can see everything through God's eyes. Doesn't work that way. But look at verse 14. All of this, this salvation is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And so this is speaking about a future redemption of a possession that has been purchased in the past. There is a possession that was purchased or in a sense redeemed in the past but waiting to be redeemed in another sense in the future. What in the world could this be talking about? It's not talking about the hearts of believers. Can't be. Look at chapter 1 verse 4 in Ephesians. According, this is written to Christians, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That redemption of the souls of men in God's church was chosen in God before the foundation of the world. But here we have reference to something that has been purchased awaiting a future redemption. So, there's a purchased possession waiting to be redeemed. If we're, if we're Christ, we're in Christ, we've been redeemed. Our soul has been redeemed. At the rapture, our bodies will be redeemed. But there's something else that's going to be redeemed. We don't talk a whole lot about. But there is a purchased possession, already purchased, waiting to be redeemed. I think it's important to remember that. Turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 19 through 23. Anthony, will you read that? 8, 19 through 23. Even we who, who have had our souls redeemed by Christ in the purchase He made at the cross, 
We wait for a future redemption of the body. When is that redemption of the body? For those dead in Christ and those who live and remain. It's at the rapture. But not just us are waiting for redemption. It says here that the creature, that is the created being, the animal life, everything there, the earth, the trees and the plants, the, even the land and the topography, it too groaneth and travails waiting for redemption. And you see, the creature wasn't made subject to corruption willingly. It was corrupted because of Adam and his choice. So, it's almost like the creature in the earth is an innocent victim. And it's been cursed. Not willingly. So it thereby waits for some sort of redemption. Creation itself groans and travails for redemption. Jesus said in Luke 21 that this groaning, this travailing would intensify and increase as the time of His coming draws near. I think we see evidence of that today. I just want to read a, a quick verse from Luke 21 in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is talking about the last days. Listen to these verses. And there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, don't get upset, don't get worried, don't get fearful. Look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. The redemption of the body at the rapture, but also the redemption of the very things that are travailing the creation itself. Now it's very interesting to me that ancient Jewish rabbinical tradition, this is apart from New Testament revelation, they don't believe the New Testament's the Word of God. Jewish tradition based upon the Old Testament prophets and an interpretation thereof taught a seven-year period of creation or earth's travail prior to the coming of Messiah to rule the world. It's what they teach. They teach that Messiah is coming. They don't believe Jesus was Messiah. They are looking for a future Messiah even today. But they don't believe He's going to come until there's a seven-year period of travail here on the earth where creation groans. And it's interesting because this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this seven-year period is called the birth pangs of the Messiah. So the Messiah's coming is preceded by birth pangs. That is the earth, creation, groaning. The very things Jesus said there in Luke 21, yearning to be redeemed. The birth pangs of the Messiah. Interesting. So it's not only man where God's redemption program is concerned, it's the creation, the earth itself. God's program for redemption isn't just about the heart of man. It's about the entire created order. It's about the innocent victims, the animals and the trees and the plants and the surface of the earth and the fishes in the sea and the birds of the air. Innocent victims who didn't choose to be corrupted, but were corrupted because man disobeyed and transgressed the ordinance God gave him. So these are undeniable truths talked about there in Scripture that relate directly to God's program of redemption for the world. So there's something that's been purchased that's yet to be redeemed. 
And that something includes more than man. It includes creation. We know that concerning God's program of plan or plan of redemption for the world. Now, we need to talk about the Old Testament law for a little bit. The Old Testament law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it contains many, many laws and regulations. Um, There's over 600 laws and regulations in the Torah. That's why the, the Jews often use a pomegranate as a symbol of the law because the pomegranate has a certain number of seeds and the number of seeds in that pomegranate equals the numbers of laws and regulations in the Torah. I believe that's how it works. But there's many laws and regulations for Israel in the Torah, not for Gentiles. It says, when you look at the Ten Commandments, it specifically says that the, the commandment to keep the Sabbath, it specifically says there in Exodus that this was given as a sign between God and Israel. It says it not only in Exodus, but elsewhere, I believe in Ezekiel. Very clear that that commandment is an agreement between God and Israel. It's not about the Gentiles. So any Gentile church that tries to say we have to keep the Sabbath to be saved doesn't know how to read their Bible. Don't even know how to read the chapters that surround the Ten Commandments and talk about it. It's it's extreme to me. It's crazy. I can't believe people don't have the ability to see these things. doesn't mean the principle of Sabbath is not important. We ought to observe that principle for our health, for our well-being. I try to take Sundays and not do any work. I don't do any exercise on Sundays. I rest. I do things that I consider a rest because I believe the principle of Sabbath is important. But when we take laws that were given to Israel and try to force them on the Christian life to be more holy and closer to God, then we're not trusting Christ and His holiness. We're trusting our own righteousness. And that's the mistake that the Jews made. But we can look at these laws and regulations given to Israel because they reveal the character of God. And God's relationship with Israel throughout all of history is a picture of His character for all the Gentiles to see. And when we see His character, we ought to run to Him and submit to Him because His authority is not only over Israel, the chosen people, but over all the earth. And so it's good to look at these laws because many of them point to Christ and they describe and prefigure what happened in Christ. And many of the ways God deals with Israel reflects the way He deals with us in the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, I want us to consider three laws, per se, relating specifically to redemption. Okay? So we're going to look at this in the Old Testament. We're not going to get very far. But the Old Testament has laws relating to redemption. Three types of redemption in the Old Testament. There's redemption concerning a wife. You know, particularly when a husband dies and leaves no seed, and it's the responsibility of a near kinsman to take the widow to be his wife to raise up seed to his brother. So there's redemption concerning a wife. There's also redemption concerning a slave. People make a lot of accusations against the Old Testament. You know, people, these atheists on the campus, all they know how to do is quote Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. And then they know how to paraphrase a couple of passages from Leviticus 19. And they talk about how wicked God is because the Bible says in the Old Testament that, you know, are you wearing a shirt that has cotton and polyester mix? Well, you're not following God. I've heard that a million times when I'm preaching. Um, I usually respond, well, yeah, I love mixed fibers. They're very comfortable. I love them. 
You know, they don't know what to do with it. And then they also talk, well, God says it's okay for somebody to rape a slave girl and then they don't get punished and then God punishes the slave girl and it's His fault. That comes from Leviticus 19 and that's not what it's talking about at all. People need to learn to read. It's called reading comprehension. I don't think anybody has that anymore. But slavery in the Old Testament within the nation of Israel were slaves that were in servitude because of debt. They mismanaged money. They borrowed money and didn't pay it back. So they were a slave due to debt. And we just think, oh, slavery is so horrible. We have that slavery here in America today. Slavery to the banks. Slavery to the mortgage companies. You're not free to do what you want to do with your house if it's owned, for, owned by the bank. It's not your house. You're a slave to debt. But God's law provided means for redemption not only for a wife, but concerning a slave who was a slave to debt. And then there's also a redemption provided in the Old Testament for the land itself. So you have redemption for a wife, redemption for a slave who'd become indebted and couldn't get out, and then redemption for the land. And I think we need to look at these things because it's going to shed some light on God's program of redemption for the world. Because the redemption for a wife And what's described there in the Old Testament prefigures the redemption for the church purchased at the cross. The Lamb's wife, the church. Redemption from servitude brought on by death prefigures the redemption of the body that happens at the rapture. Redemption from the body of death. The slavery of sin. You see, in Christ, we can be freed in an instant from the penalty of sin. As we live our life under the power of the Holy Spirit, God brings us into conformity with the image of righteousness we've declared to have. And through the process of sanctification, we can be redeemed from the power of sin. But it's not until the rapture or our death that, well, it's not until the rapture that the actual body, the Spirit is freed upon death, but at the rapture, the body itself is freed from the presence of sin. So, the redemption in terms of the slavery points to the redemption of our body in Christ at the rapture. And then the redemption of the land, the land redemption, I believe, points to the redemption of the earth. And so we have the redemption of the Spirit in Christ took place at the cross and at the moment we received it. The redemption of the body takes place at the rapture. What about the redemption of the land? Is there a redemption for this earth that groans and travails? The birth pangs of the Messiah? Is the coming of the Messiah going to actually deliver the earth from these birth pangs? I think that's what's happening. And when we understand God's program for Israel's land redemption, we're going to know exactly what this scroll is, and we're going to know exactly the significance of the Lamb's actions with the scroll. And then we're going to see that the rest of Revelation is all tied to that scroll. You have seven seal judgments. The seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. And the seven trumpet is the seven vials. So it's all the seventh seal. And then you're going to have this parenthetical vision of this great angel standing on the the earth and reading something. And then you're going to have the Messiah come back and split the Mount of Olives or something's going to be read and declared. And then you have the Millennial Kingdom. It all goes together. You can't separate it. When you understand what this scroll is and how it's tied to the redemption 
of the land, then you can't argue that the, the rest of the revelation is just random repetitions of the same judgment, just being described with different symbols. Or you can't be so foolish to think that it all took place in 70 A.D. Or that the order and the, and the language is not literal and purposeful. It all ties together. So we'll get more into that next week. Um, let me give you a passage of Scripture I'd like for you to study this week. I'd like for you to study Leviticus chapter 25. Okay, Leviticus 25 is in the law and it talks about the redemption of land that had been lost. It talks specifically about the land, the year of Jubilee, the Sabbath year. I just want you to get an idea of what God expected out of Israel in terms of the land and how God provided so that that land would never be lost. That the original inheritors or tenants of that land would never lose their tenant possession. God made ways for that not to happen. And it ought to highlight the truth that that is Israel's land because God gave it to them. It's not anyone else's land. And those that hate Israel have got it all backwards. And they're going to pay the price for that. That is Israel's land. God never intended the tenant possession of that land to go to anyone else. He never intended that the tenant possession of a particular tribe would go to another tribe. And He made sure it wouldn't happen. So, the Palestinians, those that have been in and out of Israel for all these years, they're squatters. They're foreign squatters. They're going to be evicted. They're going to be evicted and the proper tenant possession of that land is going to be given to the rightful tenant possessors when the landlord comes. And He's coming. He's coming. Alright, I'm sorry I went a few minutes over. Um, Keep the outline. I'll have a new one for you next week. And I'm real excited about the parallels between God's plan of redemption for Israel and its land and His plan of redemption for the land of the earth itself. It all goes together. And that's why we need the Old Testament because we can learn a lot about the New Testament. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for this day. Thank You for this time to look at Your Word, Lord. I'm just amazed at the deep wellsprings of truth. Lord, it's not Old Testament or New Testament. It's both. It's all one testimony. Lord, a testimony that You are Creator and that You created all things for Your pleasure and that it brought You pleasure not only to redeem mankind through Jesus Christ and the purchase made at the cross, but to restore the earth to its original created order. And we look forward, Lord, not only to the redemption of our body, we thank You for the redemption of our soul by faith in Christ, but we look forward to the redemption of our body at Christ coming in the air for His church and we long, Lord, just as creation does for the redemption of this earth and for a time when You will rule and reign in righteousness, Lord. There won't be Republicans and Democrats arguing in Your kingdom, Lord. It'll be a theocracy as it was meant to be in the original, Lord. There won't be debate. You will rule in righteousness, Lord, and Your saints will rule on the earth with You. And I look forward to that day, Lord, when the lion will lay down with the lamb, the wolf will eat grass like the sheep, where children will play on spiders' dens and handle serpents, and no one will be hurt in Your holy mountain. Lord, until that day, may we labor and proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the coming of Messiah. Thank You for the food. May it bless us, nourish us, fill us, and may our fellowship bring You glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.